0: Welcome to the very first podcast from the very first show of All Back to Bowies. Or All Back to Bowies, we will decide at the end of the run, when our referendum results are in, as you will uh, hear uh, when you listen to the show. It was our first show, please forgive, it was a little nervous, a little chaotic, everything was being done for the first time. And we screwed up. Uh, Our microphones, we didn't use the microphones and so for the first sort of 10 minutes of the show the sound is probably a little bit distant but it gets better after that and um, that's something we'll fix in future and also our timekeeping was a little bit off and so we weren't able to finish with some of the things we wanted to finish with but fortunately uh, I think there was still a fascinating discussion I think um, there's a really, really uh, brilliant poetic contribution Um, look out for that Uh, Van Badham was mighty in uh, um, explanation of the current depressing state of Australian politics and um, the rest you can hear for yourself so I hope you enjoy All Back to Bowie's David welcome to David Bowie's rooftop yurt in Manhattan. If you, close, if you close your eyes and listen, you can hear New York outside, the traffic going by. You can hear Iman padding about down below in the, in, in the Bowie flat. They've said they might come up later. If, but the fantastic thing is it's our chance to talk about all the interesting stuff to do the independence referendum and none of the boring stuff in the hope that if they do turn up they can get a feeling for what it's all about Today's show is called Hazy Cosmic Jive Every show has a David Bowie title and it's about the metaphors um, of independence and it, your host today is myself and Linda McClain And We thought that because the independence referendum divides everything into binaries it would be fun to begin with a very important binary question. Yeah, the fact is his name is actually David Bowie. I think it's David Bowie. <laughs> and so the, the question we ask is, do you agree <laughs> that David B- Bowie do you agree that David Bowie is pronounced Bowie? Yes,
1: yes. yes hands up
2: for yes Bowie! Bowie! Bowie. 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 Bowie.
0: Do you So the question before us, you ask at the end. do you agree that
1: <laughs> David Bowie's Bowie name is actually David Bowie. Is <laughs> Bowie. Bowie. 1, 2,
0: 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, Bowie. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 yes. Were you
1: counted?
0: 16 yes. And how many? T- no? How many? Uh, no, thanks to the room. Yeah, 1, 2, 3, 10, 11, four twelve, 12, 13, 14. fourteen. 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 Whoa, so zero. Sarah, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> You've for our ongoing referendum. Well, it's not a, it's the a narrow lead. It's too, what? I don't know if it's a Well, no, that's What's not, not possible. Street. And also, we, we discussed earlier on whether there was a Devo Max option. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: well, this, yeah, this, this was this was,
3: this, was, this was, OK, that's fantastic. something
0: <laughs> 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 <Okay>, that shouldn't be with a leading question, like, do you agree? that makes people...
3: That is... what <laughs> it should be for future right?
0: Fantastic. All right. Um, so we're what,
1: agreed that for today it's better. Right? For today it's right. <laughs> we begin,
0: with some, we begin with some music from, uh, uh, Rachel Newton, uh, a fantastic uh, harpist and musician with uh, her own band The She, but today she's going to play solo for us. Um, while she's playing, I would like you to think, and if you have a bit of paper somewhere about your person, just to write down and finish the following sentence, because we're thinking about metaphors today. We're thinking about uh, uh, the kind of metaphors and language that we used in the referendum debate. So, if we finish the sentence, Scotland is like,
1: <laughs>
0: that would be absolutely brilliant. And
1: you're not allowed to use the word like. <laughs> 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 if anybody needs a little bit of paper,
0: I think supply? a and Whilst they're doing that, Richard. Thanks, Thanks. Paper. 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 Okay. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Rachel Neaton. <laughs> uh, I, I might do a
3: bowie, bowie, bowie number for you later on, but I'll start off with one <laughs> of my own. This is a traditional
4: Gaelic song, and uh, I've just done an album called Change Link, um, and it's all about feelings, about
2: to change like... <laughs>
3: of fuel
5: Scotland. What like are you? Shall I compare thee to a victim of domestic abuse? Will that be illuminating? Will it help us make an informed decision in September at the polling station? They say that you should uh, govern in prose but campaign in poetry, so we dress you up in metaphor and serve you like a simile. I've got a problem with metaphor. It's everywhere and I can't escape it. I'm lost in a fog, I'm tuning my radio where it's all noise and no signal I'm trying to gain access to the facts and figures Instead I feel like I'm drowning in figurative speech For example We've got the best of both worlds It's a halfway house If it ain't broke, don't fix it We need to have our hands on all of the fiscal levers On one side I'm hearing something like this We're family We're brother and sister, we take the piss, have a bit of banter But at the end of the day, we always make up We look out for each other because we're better together We have stood shoulder to shoulder for over 300 years Too much blood has been spilled for this United Kingdom to just chuck it all away We built the empire side by side Again, we're not an empire anymore But we're still the most successful partnership the world has ever seen We punch above our weight We have a place at the top table we gave freedom to the world, Ken, and now we're just going to sell it down the river. I can't understand it. It's all bluff and bluster, empty promises, there's nothing behind it, there's no substance, it's pie in the sky. I like the security of being part of something bigger. We're founding members of this exclusive club. It's an umbrella that shelters us from the rain, it's a safety net to cushion us if we fall. Let's face it, Scotland is a subsidy junkie. We get more than we give. It's a cushy deal. Why put all that at risk? Don't rock the boat. Things are grand just the way they are. The road to independence is a one-way street. Once we've gone out that door, we won't be let back in. If we leave now, it might not work for us. The genie won't get back into the bottle. We won't ever be ruled by Westminster again. And if the relationship goes sour, it will be a messy divorce. What kind of settlement will we get? Why would we want to become a foreign country to our best customer? We don't want to go to London and it's a different country. We'll be foreigners. Foreigners. It'll be a race to the bottom. It'll be a massive shock to the economy. If you ask me, it's a disaster waiting to happen. It's not scaremongering to warn people of impending doom. Nah, there's too much to lose. I'm quite happy to soldier on the way we are. It's a no-brainer. I'm voting for unity over division. Now, of course, I don't agree with any of that. But on the other side, the metaphors come just as thick and fast. It's time we grow up. Stand on our own two feet. I've got two boys and when they left home I didn't think, oh, I'm so worried about them out there on their own. I felt proud that they were becoming independent. Like many entrepreneurs before running my own business, I felt like a square peg in a round hole. For me, independence is about being your own boss. All it takes is a small leap of faith. If Scotland was a company, I would definitely invest Business is booming, the only thing holding us back is bad management Tethered to Westminster, we can never run free I believe that a yes vote in September will be the first step in rebuilding our economy We can join the ranks of the world's richest countries, have our own voice at the top table Europe will welcome us with open arms and we'll bend over backwards to attract investment We have all the ingredients we need, Scotland has a rich natural larder We have an environment in which to grow and prosper. We're the Saudi Arabia of renewables. Whereas Britain is broken. It's not fit for purpose. Policies are imposed on us from above. There's a democracy deficit. I believe independence will bring government closer to the people. What do these Tory toffs know about life at the coalface? Independence will force Labour to rediscover its roots. Let Scotland flourish. Let Scotland bloom. We will stand proudly among the family of nations with our heads held high. No! No, no, no. I've had enough of all this personification. The union is not a marriage and independence is not a divorce. Scotland is not a battered wife too feared to leave her abusive husband. She's not a princess locked in a musty castle unaware that a golden medal lies just outside her door. She's not a newborn babe with parallel futures. The home nations are not members of a dysfunctional family or a rock band with solo ambitions. This Blizzard of mixed metaphors muddies the waters of the debate. I'm seeking clarity, and all I can find is a of allegory. I do love the idea of Scotland as a beacon of progressive opinion, a kind of model social democracy, a lighthouse in the fog, guiding radical and moderate ships past conservative, neoliberal rocks. But another image gnaws its way into my mind: we are rats. Rats abandoning the sinking ship of the British state because British democracy is a lost cause. Please, mister, can I get my ball back? I don't believe we're sleepwalking towards catastrophe, but I don't know if I can describe this moment as an awakening. We keep trying to persuade by painting the same pictures, telling stories like they're truths, then we wonder why others disagree. They must be ignorant or stupid, right? Maybe the fact we can't see eye to eye is related to our different vocabularies. What if metaphorical thinking is the only kind we've got? No prose, all poetry. So, I'm making an appeal for better metaphors, please. It's time to shine a light into the dark recesses of political discourse.
0: That was fantastic, David. Uh, so, can we welcome uh, two other guests to talk about this. Um, our first guest is Hannah McGill, a columnist, film writer, and former director of the Film Festival. And our second guest is a wonderful novelist, uh, who I'm sure needs no introduction, Janice Gallagher.
6: Um, what struck me listening to Davy there and what has struck me a great deal throughout the the debate is there's, a, there's this conception that there's a difference between telling straight facts and speaking in woolly metaphors and actually that line is extremely hard to draw because what you notice when you look at debate on the news or debate online as we, we've all seen a great deal of that is that people, as Janice says, very very quickly go for metaphors because there's no such thing as a hard fact about something like this there are you can you can say give me numbers but even the numbers have been interpreted by someone the numbers have been put there by someone and someone else can disagree with them so this has been where you see this massive frustration come up in people when they're talking about it is i just want clarity i just want facts i just want straight facts and figures but actually there's no such thing so that people grasp for poetic language shows you that there isn't really a clear distinction between hard news language and poetry, in the same way that there isn't really a clear distinction between journalism and telling stories, because each bleeds into the other. Did you want to say something?
5: Um, Yeah, there was this moment um, when Alistair Darling said, at the launch of the, you know, five million billion questions, or whatever it is, um, You know, we we have to base this referendum campaign on nothing but cold hard facts, and it felt like there was this challenge to yes, Scotland to kind of um, do away with all its convincing narrative, Um, uh, and it was a kind of interesting moment where I was like, is that possible? Can you you know get beyond language and just look at kind of economics, Um, and of course you can't, you know. Um, but it feels like in, in the constructing of stories that we can tell amongst ourselves, that actually there's another bunch of stories and a, it's just competing stories that sometimes don't overlap. Um, and uh, Yeah, it's just competing narratives, basically competing metaphors. Um, I, and my desire is just to kind of to try and join the links between those two things On uh, I've got a
1: question. Um, I looked up what metaphor meant originally and it's from the Greek meta, pheren, which means to carry over or to transfer. And it made me start to wonder two things which I'll try and phrase as a question and, and one is um, is metaphor always going to be referencing a past experience? Is it possible to create a metaphor that that will that will in some way, create a new experience or a new way of phrasing language? And the second thing is, is it, is it about finding the right phrase that reflects the emotion that you're carrying? Is that what you're transferring when you use metaphor?
4: It, is that better? <laughs> it, it depends on the metaphor you're using and it depends what you're... <laughs> using it for it's a tool of language you can use it to do so many things you can use it to scare the shit out of people uh you can you can use it to uh to ameliorate you can use it in a love poem yeah i mean it depends what effect you're trying to achieve and reference past events i, I don't think necessarily when I mean, the the subtitle of what we're doing in here has to do with david bowie I've been a Bowie fan all my life. And in fact, David and I are going to have a Bowie competition later as to how many of the words we know by heart. <laughs> and since I'm older than David, I am going to win. I was actually there, David, on oh, the disco deal. floor in a golden catsuit. I really did have a golden catsuit. And if I still had it, I'd be here wearing it today. But fortunately, it is not here today. The extraordinary thing about Bowie, the thing that drew you, was that his metaphors were so open. His metaphors yeah. were complete explosions of possibility um, of how the others must see the faker. and I'm much too fast to take that test. And I, I remember spending hours of my teenage years trying to think, yeah, but what does it mean? It means, the thing about metaphor is, it, it means what you choose it to mean. It means what resonates with you, it's actually not a diktat. A metaphor is an illusion, and you take it and you make of it what you will, but you can't have speech without metaphor. It is how your mind thinks. It is how the minds of children think. Those of us with children or who have contact with children, you know when they're two, they come out with these extraordinary attempts at putting a sentence together And it's not about getting the verb in the right place. It's not about putting the adjective in the appropriate slot near the noun. It's to do with what that thing looks like, or smells like, or, see, that's entirely visceral. If you don't use metaphor, cold hard facts, that says it all about Alastair Darling. Cold hard Alastair Darling, it's just, The most extraordinary thing to say, as if there is any such thing. Everything should be open to interpretation. And what metaphor does is it leaves it open to you to drive that, here I'm going, drive that metaphor. Here's a a metaphor a bond metaphor to either to get in it and drive it away and take it someplace else or find your own. That's what metaphor does. That's why it's the main tool of art in every art form.
1: Um, In the way that it's being used um, in in the ref debate, is it? I think that it's, it's often being used to control our thinking. Um, so the models that are being used are, are not open. They're actually quite closed.
6: Well, I think political language is obviously about manipulation because any speech, to some extent, is manipulation. If you're trying to communicate something, then you're trying to manipulate the response of the person that you're communicating it to because you want them to hear things the way that you expect them to be heard or want them to be heard but um the fact is that you can't control someone's response to a metaphor because people have different interpretations of the same thing if you say the word marriage to one person it means something beautiful and harmonious (laughs) you say it to someone else it means a nightmare you know so just something as simple as that and there's also the fact that in terms of getting away from metaphor a lot of the language that we use is metaphorical without us even really noticing just because we've used certain words and terms for so long that they've become embedded embedded you know Janice used the word visceral that's a you know that's a metaphorical use of language cold hard fact isn't you know you can't get away from it so can i can, is it worth going head on for the marriage
0: metaphor which definitely seems to be one that dominates because both sides use it in a sense so it gets used as why would you want to leave the marriage it's a messy divorce but also you get used in the in, in the other way around, which is to say it's like being in an unhappy marriage and both sides would be happier and so on. Um, Dave, what, what do you think? Uh, do you think it, that... Do, I mean, you, you seem to particularly draw in on that one at the end. Um,
5: yeah, I think that's one where that's been initiated by the, the No campaign, if you like, where it is marriage as harmonious as you know, something that's better as a unit. um, And yeah, it's been taken, the same metaphor has been taken to mean something else from the Yes campaign. It's an unhappy marriage, we'd be better off separating. And I feel like that doesn't do us any favors as a metaphor, actually, because it kind of um, casts Scotland as a victim again, yet again, as somebody who's suffering um, at the hands of somebody else, Um, as the kind of lesser of partners. uh, and it, and it kind of feeds into this inferiority complex, which is there's a danger of kind of being there at the heart of the, the, the conversation yeah. already. So I feel like that's one metaphor that we haven't chosen, but we've kind of tried to claim it as our own.
4: Um, as far as I'm aware, that metaphor was started by James the First and Sixth. Uh-huh. He compared. <laughs> that's where that's from, yeah. and that's why it is so fruitful in the imagination. James the, f- the First and Sixth, let's call him James the Sixth, went into an elaborate um, kind of psychological war to try and pull the two nations together because he could see financial sense in it and he could see more power in it. Mm -hmm. He was the start of the kind of multilateral Stuart dynasty, if you like, and his kids and his kids and his kids. It was about family and therefore he saw England as the husband and he saw Scotland as the wife, because she would be biddable. She would do as she was bid. She would have your dinner ready and let you sit in front of the fire and not have her friends in the house when you came home. (laughs) It was really important, I think, to try and win over the English suspicion of people who had always been an enemy and who therefore were seen in a treacherous light. Why would they not be seen in a treacherous light? They're they're there to do you harm if they can. And that is where that Uh comes from, and that's why it's so rich. You and I took place in a thing that was in The Guardian a yonk ago, before anybody gave a shit what was going to happen about the referendum? And they said nobody will care, nobody will read it. Who will we get? Writers. We'll get a bunch of writers to write something about what they think about this politics. And every last one of them, from yeah. Ian Banks to yourself, who was who was kind of on the on the it was it was two chaps at either side at the end like bookends, used the metaphor of marriage of a marriage. I know,
0: and in fact, th- thank you for bringing that up because <laughs> because I must admit that. Davey, uh, one of the reasons I asked Davey to do the provocation was because he did essentially what made the similar point in a fantastic Facebook post. And I um, I was acutely, painfully aware that I had used pretty much every metaphor <laughs> that, he was, um, that he was drawing on. I, I thought it was very interesting, Janice, when you talked about uh, Bowie, because um, he used cut-up, didn't he? And w- I don't know if you maybe know this, I'm imagining you're all pretty hardcore Bowie fans. Um, <clears throat> but he he took the... Uh, uh, he would take sort of sentences and cut them up and then pick them out at random and use that to create metaphors. And I think some of the openness you're describing in his songs comes out of that. I suppose I'm wondering whether the job of a writer, even if it's not literally to cut up, you know, cold, hard facts and... Um, at the top table, and then sort of at the cold, top table, hard food comes out, or whatever it is, but you you know we could randomly cut up some of the independence metaphors and see what came out, but I suppose isn't there something in the job of a writer being to approach it and to try to find another way in or um, Hannah do,
6: I think that's uh, it's exactly what i started thinking about when you were speaking about whether you can move metaphor beyond referencing a past event the cut-up thing is to do with take language out of its context of meaning take it out of its the sentence structure that we learn as we grow up and learn to communicate like proper humans and see if you can construct a different spontaneous meaning and sometimes it's absolute nonsense and sometimes it's like fridge poetry you know sometimes you sort of just hit on something and go what well, that's strangely beautiful for no apparent reason and I think absolutely one of the reasons that artists have been stirred by and engaged in this debate, and there's been a lot of talk about why are there so many artists banging on about independence, it's partly because maybe the only people who can forge a metaphor for the future that doesn't have any cold hard facts behind it are people who are using their brains in a slightly different way. And there's been more of that stuff of getting writers to postulate upon it and a few attacks on that. I was just reading yesterday a couple of very strong attacks, one by David Torrance and one by Alex Massey about shut up writers. You know, If you want a big pile of nonsense, ask a novelist. I mean, you know, and they're, they're, they are being provocative too. Everybody's just trying to get a rise out of each other at this point, and there's something a bit trolly about it. But the point that they were making was, we need people who actually know things, not these dreamers. And if you're talking about something that's happening in the future that no one has cold, hard facts about, then you can't ask for cold, hard facts, you know?
0: D- David, do you, you just...?
5: Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it goes down to whether you have metaphors which are opening out meaning and kind of leading to multiple interpretations. And I think that's our kind of natural state as writers, is to try and put the kind of the sense of what has been spoken into the the, the minds of the spectators, the the, the listeners. Um, it's all about it, it kind of planting a seed in somebody's head and letting it bloom however they want, and not about trying to narrow down the kind of sense of something. And I feel like that's where I feel like there's a, a strange mismatch between political campaigning and and art where we have this task to do which is to kind of get as many people to turn out and vote in a particular way as possible which means we have to kind of simplify things and I feel very uncomfortable about simplifying things. My kind of natural impulse is to make things more complicated rather than simpler.
1: Um, so I think this is probably my last question but it seems to me that the only truth about the future is that it's uncertain. And so therefore, if you take um, a political drive out of that and start thinking about creating metaphors that empower you to embrace, try not to use metaphors, <laughs> uncertainty, what, do you want to have a stab at that?
4: <laughs> well, no, but they, there, is, there is something else that is, that, that is certain about it. I mean, it isn't just uncertain. There is another certitude about the future, and that is we're all going to die. And I think that one's quite pressing. I think that one's quite important. What are you here for? In the meantime, while you last, what are you actually here for? And what is your function? And what are you going to do? And it, it is rather estranging to me to be sitting here doing this, talking as a writer, because I'm not... I am a citizen. I am somebody's mother. I am somebody's wife. I am uh, a person who's a big fan of David Bowie, unlike yourself. I have got all sorts of components inside who I am. And writer is only one very, very small one. We all use metaphor in order to cross, this is what I think. And I don't think you're trying to persuade. You're not being a politician. What you're doing is waving. (laughs) not drowning what you're doing is saying this is what it looks like over here does anybody recognize that and sometimes someone waves back you are trying to be clear with metaphor because if you use cold hard facts they could mean fucking anything (laughs) lies damned lies and statistics you can do anything with them oh that proves this my arse, it doesn't necessarily prove anything at all. I might think it may... They're more open to interpretation. interpretation. This is all kind of arse over... T- it's the wrong way round. Yeah, I have to stop using very physical metaphors. <laughs> I think.
0: Right.
4: It's the wrong way round. It's visceral, one might say, yes. And it is also an appeal to the emotion. And, and, and a metaphor doesn't work in its own. It doesn't, we're talking about it as though it's an animal. We're talking about it as though it's something you kind of unleash upon an argument to make it not fair or make it strange. (laughs) It's not a thing in itself. It works within tenor. The tenor of an argument tends to be loaned by its metaphors. And I was trying to make a list last night so I had something to say as though I was gonna have any problem. (laughs) I was making this list last night and I come up with stuff about, it's the stuff about dark and light I've noticed. The choices between fear and hope, evil. Did you notice the one about evil? J.K. Rowling talking about death eaters. What are death eaters? I don't even know what that is. I mean, what is a death? It doesn't sound nice. So that, that is a tenor of something, isn't it? James McMillan saying that the forces of evil were going to work through Scotland if we weren't very careful. Jimmy's lovely. But, you know, he's Jimmy. And the, the, the other one I noticed in particular was George Robertson. Did you hear George Robertson saying the forces of evil will be rubbing their hands in glee at the thought of Scottish secession, and that the forces of evil have got other things to do. What? I don't think they're that fast. It's about tenor. And the tenor for me comes down to my role as a mother. This is, to coin a yeah. book title, this is not about me. This is about people's wins. This is about children. This is about what comes next. And that's what I want to leave behind. See, there was a circuitous route, but I got there. (laughs) I got back to we're all going to (laughs) die. You want to leave something behind. And I'd like to leave something hopeful behind, not something cold, hard and afraid. Um, (laughs)
0: Hannah, I... I we're coming towards the end so would you like to have a sort of a final thought about which of the metaphors have appealed to you or which don't
6: well I think the um, what jumps out for me is uh, I'm interested in what uh, Davy was saying about the function of artists because I do think that's been a quite significant interesting conversation that's come out of this that if actually what you're talking about is a binary choice between yes and no I think art there is a danger that calling upon artists to give their opinions can Open things up too much, because as you say, if campaigning is about persuasion, then opening people's minds with things that can be interpreted one way or another way, arguably, is the least useful thing that you yeah. can do. But, um, but at the same time, what has been fascinating for people, I mean, you know, I think it's it's. Um, I always say whichever side of the debate you're on, but um, I don't really know what artists on the no side have been saying because there hasn't been a terribly vocal sort of outpouring from them as yet. Maybe that'll happen afterwards, but. Um, Certainly the, the, the quality of the debate has been so focused on drawing people into conversations about creativity and the positioning of Scotland. I mean, we've all had to write essays about Scottish national identity and things like that. It's, it's a sort of cliche of how we mm. conceive of ourselves, and certainly writers and journalists and artists are asked to comment on that all the time. But this has given a sort of liveliness to that idea in that it's become a real concrete thing that Scottish national identity becomes an actual thing rather than something that we all just have airy-fairy ideas about so I think in a sense the bringing together of these cold hard facts and these metaphors has created a sort of function for artists that has been very enlivening and will continue to be so whatever happens in September I
0: think Um, we're going to have to draw this little part to an end Uh, if we've got time at the end I'd like to hear the Edward Lear but just so we don't get everybody uh, so we make sure we get everybody in small shout out The um, writers, Alex Massey and David Torrance, you mentioned, will uh, both be speaking in the Bowie yurt uh, later in the run. Please look out on the website for that. They're both uh, fantastic writers and speakers who will no doubt be very provocative um, in their ideas. Uh, Also, you talked about the Scottish identity, Hannah, and that reminds me of um, the lovely quote from William McIlvaney, uh, I'm pretty sure it's William McIlvaney, I'm sure Janice will correct me if I'm wrong, that a Scottish identity is a bit like your insurance document. You, you sort of know you've got one somewhere, but you're not quite sure where you put it. Um, a national identity is like your passport, uh, like your insurance documents. Um, on that note, I think it would be good to have some actual language and poetry. So if I could welcome up Martin O'Connor, who's going to um, give today's poem.
7: going to do some Glaswegian language stuff and as I was watching that I was I was hoping that it might tie in Uh, I'm a bit like David when he introduced himself to say that he's not like doesn't feel like at the forefront of the actual debate and I feel that myself a wee bit even though I'm a badge wearing yes person I feel like um my work can hopefully instill a bit of debate through language and the language that we use and the everyday language that we use as well. Um, So hopefully you'll find a few metaphors in this. Maybe we can play metaphor bingo. Um, This is uh, some of my Glaswegian dialect pieces. Uh, This one's called the night bus, and it's some of my favorite phrases. What a belter on the swing Bushet or Nat king Eat the breed Heed the ball Bottle merchant Hamden roar Pure scooby Steamboat Keep the edgy Bampot Major swally Heavy druthy Do lally Getting muthy Gee honours noya gaj fella snotters Nookie badge Gee laldy Mare swally Heavy whitey Peely wally Pie eatin Heavy mingin Windy lickin Windy hinging Brass monkeys Have a poke fella junkies Dry boke Hang me butt Pure tan Come on get a Faz la I your moz Need a pish Fanny boz Single Fish. Um, this is this is another favourite phrase of mine which is uh, a turn rune I turn round as la, he's pure looking at his, pure looking at his la, I go well, he goes bolt, so I pure goes to go la, and he's pure stunning there. I turn to say, wait, you are, but she's pure stunning there la, pure stunning there la, pure growling, face on it, staring, staring la, pure growling, I'm la, turn la, face la, but He's pure gain of the evils, pure trying to con me, pure trying to fire in as la, turn round and went hall, bang your ma. <laughs> she's pure stunning there la, pure stunning there la as if she's pure hang me, and there's me with the wayne and everything and I'm la and the waiting's great, greeting cause she's got her ear pierced, then she phones me, I'm la I turn round, then she turns round, then he turns round, then they turn round la, I'm la holding the out, he's pure like going news first and I'm trying to go on the bus for the pram. And then she comes after me and I go hang me with she all but pure green all this, so I'm la pure turn that, the bulging, they wanna but. And then she going go back in cause she left her straighteners on and I tell her I don't care, I just tell her. Then she asks me if I've got away and I was la, I was la they wanna butt I turn round and I went la <laughs> This is, hopefully, a nice collection of metaphors uh, called That's the Way It Always Is. And this is kind of how I was brought up uh, in a Glaswegian uh, household. Um, A lot of this is kind of me thinking about mothers and aunts and grandmothers. And that's the way it always is, and that's the way it always ends, and that's just how it turns out. And you can't do anything about it, because it's no up to you, it's up to him. And that's what I can say. When he decides, you can't argue. And it's no for me to question him, because when it's your time, it's your time. And it's no my place to say it, and I'm no saying a thing, never said that, no saying a word, it's no about me. You can't make it up, you wouldn't believe it if I tell you what's for you, it'll not do you any harm. It's always why with these things, you have to go where the work is, that's the thing. It's no up to me, it's all changing now anyway, it's no the same. You've just got to accept your lot, you can't be wishing your life away, you can't be making castles in the sky, you can't be making it harder for yourself. That's the way I was brought up and that's what I was taught to believe and when it comes down to it, you can't ask for fairer than that. And at the end of the day, it's just your luck. And when all is said and done, you can't change it, what's the point? You can't take it away, there's no point. When I'm there and I'm facing him, he'll just say, that you live a good life? And it's not about anything else, you just try your best. And I keep put other people's business... And I keep myself with myself, and I keep my heat doing, and I keep going, and I don't bother MD and nobody bothers me, I'm no like that. It's no for me to take end today with that. If you want to get involved, fine. Just don't come to me. Don't come running to me when your two legs broke. Don't come greeting to me when you've lost your eye. That's just the way it is, and it's no up to us to try and change that. He's got a plan. He's got a plan for us all, and we can't about it, and I'm just biding my time. And when it's my time, I'll know, and I'll know that's the way it is, and that's the way it ends, and that's why we'll start again. Yeah. <laughs> um, This is a metaphor for uh, Glasgow life. Change, taxis, chips, p'cora, starving, knackered, kebabs, queues, her, him, somebody, whatever, screaming, greeting, fawn, bleeding, rubbish, seagulls, stocious, hoaching, singing, cheering, bealing, boke, alleys, lanes, puking, winching, spirit, mixers, bouffin bev, gallus para, steaming, lost, drun drukit, raging, game, baltic, roasting, barney, stash, steamboats, minging, belter, lamped, glaikit, bouncing, ready, claimed, whited, nightly, bile, bun. And finally, I think, maybe, finally, really, really quickly, uh, this is a a piece which is a, a version of the Prayer of the Gloria. Glory to God in the highest and peace to his people the lowest. Lord, Father, Heavenly Father, Almighty Father and Father. do we do? We worship you, we give you thanks, we give you praise. Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of the Father. Lord God, Lamb of God, take away the sins of the world have mercy on us. Jesus the God, Jesus the Father, Jesus the Priest, Priest the Da, Father the Dad. Da. Was Jesus Father God or was Jesus Father Joseph or was it Beth? Father, are you my Father or is God my Father? And what about the priest because he's a Father I know. Father, if you're sitting at the right hand of the Father, can you ask him which one's my Father? In the glory of God the Father, gonna ask him to clear that one up? Cause it's getting a bit confusing in here. Amen.
0: Um, that was absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much, man. I... I forgot what's next. It's... Next is Van Badum. Van Badum is a wonderful... Uh, Writer from Australia. I'm just getting a sign because we started late. I think we're gonna. This will have to be our last thing that we do. So we've got uh, Van Badham is from Australia, from Melbourne, Australia, and has written us a letter from Melbourne. At every Bowie's show, we're gonna have a letter from somewhere in the world, and today's letter is from Melbourne and is delivered in person by the wonderful playwright Van Badham, who has a show on. Uh, 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 who has a show on here in Edinburgh? which perhaps, once she's finished the letter, she will let us know exactly where and when it is on so that we can go and see it. Van Baden, thank you.
2: Thanks. Uh, I'm going to pretend that I'm actually in Melbourne to deliver this letter. There may or may not be some video. And if I was in Melbourne and I was speaking to you, I would begin this letter by acknowledging that, as a white Australian, I'm standing on Aboriginal land. As a white Australian, in Melbourne, in my home, I'm standing on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. A nation who had their land stolen, never ceded. A nation that survived a genocide. And to put that into perspective for an international audience, when we talk about the genocide of the Australian Aboriginal people, we're talking about a genocide of 90% of the population between the arrival of European settlement in 1788 and the census taken in 1900. We're talking about the disappearance of not one language, but more than a hundred spoken living languages of the 500 nations that constituted the Australia before European settlement. We're talking about a people whose rights to personhood were only granted in a referendum of white Australia in 1966. Less than 10 years before I was born, an Aboriginal, people, uh, an Aboriginal person couldn't legally open a bank account, had no rights in court, and was understood within the terms of Australian law as being an animal judged under the Flora and Fauna Act. So when I speak about my nation and I speak about our political circumstance, I'm also acknowledging that there is a black nation underneath mine, which in the context of a people which is your people, who are articulating for your own serenity and for your determination as a people, I'd like you to bear in mind that as a white Australian of Scots heritage... My role in the diaspora from this country was to take this culture and implant it over someone else's. And as a white Australian speaking publicly about nationhood, I can't preface in any other way. Dear Scotland, it is with enormous amounts of envy that I find myself here speaking about your referendum and my role as an Australian engaging it. I'm 12,000 miles from home, well, not if I'm in Melbourne, but imagining I was in Scotland, but I have Australia on my mind. As much as the Indy referendum campaign is inescapable in Scotland, it's proved amongst all of you to also be incredibly enfranchising. In my home, in Australia... Young people are massing on the streets against the policies of a recently elected conservative government and education policies that will now uh, be in some cases tripling the cost of university education and putting university beyond the imagining of any person on average income. In Australia, university and trade students as well, because it's affecting trade education, are on the streets fighting exactly because they are not participants in a determinative policy conversation. Not only is their policy input unsought, but their approval is uncourted. It's interesting to hear the previous discussion about the campaigns to win the people with metaphors, because in Australia since the election, the notion of winning the people has all but disappeared. Students are storming television shows. Uh, They attacked the Australian version of Question Time. Uh, They're marching and they're allowing themselves to be arrested as a community divested of any meaningful influence in debates regarding the policies that will affect them. It's only by physically disrupting the authoritarian imposition of policy that otherwise powerless students have any stake in the conversation at all. And in Australia at the moment, it's not just students. Across the policy spectrum uh, in the wake of a budget and the policy of the new government, there have been street marches, petitions, lock-ons, gatherings, emergency meetings fermenting across communities from environmental stakeholders who are trying to preserve the Great Barrier Reef, where the government has just approved the world's largest coal-loading terminal, which will destroy the reef. Uh, it's Australian pensioners who are fighting for their pension entirements. The new government has just raised the pension age to 70, um, which, if you're an Aboriginal Australian man, is not much of a consolation because you only have a life expectancy of 69. Uh, it's also uh, in, in, in reinvigorating a very long-dormant trade union movement. I was summoned to a meeting myself the other day as a writer to speak to the Australian Council of Trade Unions about words they could use apart from general strike but sort of meant the same thing. As more communities rally in defence of their social role, what becomes apparent in the present political moment is not only the devastating effect of current current government policy on communities, but how that devastation has been achieved by a reduction and evolution in the political and cultural environment, which has seen democratic participation in policy reduced to merely an election once every three years. Given the fact that before the election, the current Prime Minister made an ironclad promise that there would be no cuts to welfare, no cuts to education, no cuts to the public broadcasters under a government he led. All of that has happened in the budget that was announced in April. So it means that the promises have alri- that he was elected on have already be sh- been shredded and in Australia it was on the pretext of a budget emergency that the the Conservatives came in, they had no idea the accounts were this bad despite the fact that everything Treasury does is accountable and, um, and the Treasurer has recently been in New Zealand forgetting about the existence of the internet and gave a speech about how the Australian economy has never been in better shape despite the fact they've used a collapsing budget to justify cuts and the rest of it. The incredible activist outpouring since the election can be read in this context, not merely as an opposition to specific public policy activities, but symptomatic of a people's democratic instinct to participate, frustrated by a government that has no interest in their participation. If a leader is not accountable to their own pre-election policy commitments, then Australians have no stake in policy at all. We're forced to conclude that our elections are not democratic mechanisms for what we as a society wants and stand for, but a contest of personalities with their prize being the unaccountable subjective choice of who amongst us gets to prosper, who gets to fail, who gets to rise, and whose fall will pass unremarked. Uh, One of the um, more nefarious budget measures brought in is that if you're under the age of 30 you will not receive unemployment benefits for six months. You have a six-month waiting period before you receive any government help at all. There are broader questions here, obviously, about Australian democracy, and the apparent answers are not inspiring. Um, The Scottish writer and academic Fraser MacDonald was making a distinction about the Scottish referendum recently, which really struck me as an Australian. He said that independence is about the territorial enactment of self-determination. And he could well have been speaking to a sentiment that's waking in a newly activist Australian electorate with the ascension of the Abbott government. In such a political climate, we too are yearning for that self-determination. And being here, it's extraordinary to see the level of public discourse and debate, the fact that all of you are invested participants in the future of Scottish democracy and what that means to you as citizens in a society. It's a choice that my own modern Western nation is denied. And I can't help but look at you, no matter how you vote, with enormous amounts of envy. Thank you. Thanks very much, Van.
0: I'm sorry to say that uh, we've overrun. We started late. And on our first show, obviously, we need to sort of get our timings right. So we're not able to have a last song from Rachel. But if you come again uh, on Corrine Polwart's Sunday session, I know that Rachel is playing. So I hope you'll be able to hear more from her. Um, Thank you very much, everyone, for coming along to Bowie's. I'm sorry we didn't get to hear your What Scotland Is Like. But I wondered if we could collect them as you leave so that we can read them um out uh uh, on our podcast or uh, at another event uh thank you very very much for coming back to Bowie's. uh thank you very much to all of our guests to hannah mcgill to janice galloway to rachel newton to davy anderson to van badham and uh to linda mclean and to martin o'connor whose poet (laughs) whose poems whose poems were my personal highlight um I'm soaking up now. Uh, thank you very much. Please do come again. Please tell your friends. Please tweet about it. Please speak about it on social media. Thank you very much. This is Janice reading the Edward Lear poem that she said was her... Uh, her metaphor for Scotland, what Scotland's like.
4: Yeah, we were asked what Scotland was like, and it's like this. This is the Jumblies. They went to sea in a sieve. They did. In a sieve, they went to sea. In spite of all their friends could say on a winter's morn, on a stormy day, in a sieve, they went to sea. And when the sieve turned round and round and everyone cried, you'll all be drowned, they called out, our sieve ain't big, but we don't care a button, we don't care a fake. In a sieve we'll go to sea. Far and few, far and few are the lands where the jumblies live. Their heads are green and their hands are blue. And they went to sea in a sieve. They sailed away in the sieve, they did. In a sieve they sailed so fast, with only a beautiful pea-green veil tied with a ribbon by way of a sail to a small tobacco pipe mast. And everyone said who saw them go, Oh, won't they soon upset, you know for the sky is dark and the voyage is long and happen what may, it's extremely wrong in a sieve to sail so fast. Well, the water it soon came in, it did. The water it soon came in. So to keep them dry, they wrapped to their feet in pinky paper all folded neat and they fastened it down with a pin. And they passed the night in a crockery jar and each of them said, how wise we are. Though the the sky be dark and the voyage be long, Yet we never can think we are rash or wrong While round in our sieve we spin And 20 years later they all came back In 20 years or more And everyone said, how tall they've grown For they've been to the lakes And the Torrible Zone And the hills of the Chankley Boar And they drank their health And they gave them a feast of dumplings Made of beautiful yeast And everyone said, if only we live, we too We'll go to sea in a sieve, to the hills of the Chankli Boar. Far and few, far and few were the lands where the Chumblies live. Their heads are green and their hands are blue. And they went to sea in a sieve.
0: I think that's brilliant. And I really, I like the way that it... <laughs> i think you could use that the thing that's interesting is i think you could interpret that as both sides could <laughs> say that we're about to set sail in a sieve but but what no i like the fact you do it so for you just quickly the sieve is the the fact is we're going to do this crazy thing that everyone says we can't do but in fact we, we will come back from the hills of the Chankley boar 20 feet taller
4: We'll come back 20 feet taller. We will see ourselves in a different light, which makes makes other people see you in a different light. And you see when the people who said you would come to grief, when you come back and they say, oh, we'll do that one day. You know they won't. It takes nerve. It takes chutzpah. And that's the kind of writing we give to children because we want them to be big and strong and hopeful. So that writing means something. I would like adults to be big and strong and hopeful.
0: That's brilliant. Thank you. these are the, um, we asked the audience to finish the sentence Scotland is like, but because the show was too short, we were unable to get to their answers. So I thought it would be interesting to give their answers. And so here they are. Scotland is like a macaroon bar rough on the outside, takes a bit of force to break it. But once you let it in, you get to the sweet soft centre. Scotland is like a blank page waiting to be filled. Scotland is like a carpet, warp and weft, knotting our diversities together. Scotland is like an inadequate metaphor, flawed, frustrating, reaching for something but not quite complete. Scotland is like the Milky Way, made up of stars, some distance, some close, some visible and some waiting for the right night. Scotland is like the old bones of a beautiful woman. Scotland is like a sweeping epic. Scotland is like everywhere else. Scotland is like walking through a cloud, bloody damp. Scotland is like a kaleidoscope, many different pictures. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed the podcast. This is some plugs. for all the people who are involved things they're doing at the Fringe Uh, first up if you liked Rachel Newton her album is called Changeling Um, and it's really wonderful and it's out now Uh, and you can also see her again at Bowie's when Corinne Polwart hosts her Sunday session Van Badham is the playwright uh, behind Notoriously Yours by 5.1 Theatre Company at Sea Venues. Um, notoriously Yours is a uh, love story imagining Hitchcock in the age of the uh, uh, surveillance and Tinder and electronic um, uh, love. A That's on at Sea South uh, every day in the festival until the 25th of August. Um, and it starts at Twenty hundred hours Which I think is eight o'clock I might be wrong Um, I think that that's all The plugs for today Uh, Tomorrow's show is about The Scottish establishment Uh, Does it exist? So please do uh, Come along and see it Or tune in uh, To the podcast if you've enjoyed This one and please tell your friends Thanks very much, bye